This is part one of a two-part episode titled Emperors, Robber Barons, Cowboys, and Indians. Now, when I was recording this episode and I hit the 90-minute mark and realized that I'd only gotten halfway through my notes, it's easy to get sucked into a trivial black hole scouring sources for scattered curiosities. I decided to break it up into two more listenable chunks. I mean, I've probably poured over about 2,500 pages of research for these first two podcast episodes, and I've made some observations regarding the past five and a quarter centuries, the first of which being that racism, genocide, and war are nothing new, and that wars have different names depending on whose perspective you look from, and even then, the names can be misleading or confusing. The French-Indian War was not the French versus the Indians, which is what I originally thought. It was France paying the Indians to fight with them against Britain because the French had less people in North America. We call it the French-Indian War in the United States because at the time it was being fought, 1754 through 1763, they were the two biggest adversaries to Britain, although the British also hired Indians to fight for them a practice that would continue into the 1800s. But there's nothing named the British-Indian War. I mean, the closest thing you would find to that is the Anglo-Indian War, but that refers to the country of India, not the incorrectly named Native American Indians. British historians and English Canadians call the French-Indian War the Seven Years' War, while French Canadians call it La Guerre de la Conquête, the War of Conquest, and it ended with the Treaty of Paris, where France ceded Canada and its land east of the Mississippi to Britain. French Louisiana west of the Mississippi River, including New Orleans, or Nolens, went to its ally Spain to pay for Spain's loss of Florida to Britain, for which it got Havana, Cuba. Don't worry, though. Spain will regain Florida in 20 years and split it into East and West Florida. And you can't just say the War of 1812 because there were other significantly pointless wars happening that year as well. In North America, the United States is having their second revolution with Great Britain over disputed land in Canada. And here, we call it the War of 1812, which ends in a stalemate. All the while in Europe, Napoleon's grand army of 680,000 men effectively invade Russia by crossing the Neiman River in the Patriotic War of 1812, as it is named in Moscow, and the Russian Campaign, as it's called in France, which had its own separate Treaty of Paris, creating the Franco-Prussian alliance against Russia. And on top of that, Napoleon also has a Spanish campaign to contend with the same year. Which brings about another observation I found through my scanning through history. And that is that it is unwise to fight a war on more than one front. Spain, England, and France all seem to suffer from this sickness of a need for global monopolization. The Russian campaign was disastrous for Napoleon, who had been on a roll for 17 years changing the course of history for everyone. When he was 26, he was put in charge of the army in Italy and quickly brought France tons of wealth, 
worth over $45 million, including the seizure of 540 cannons and 150,000 prisoners. And while he's in Italy, he learns that an army travels on its stomach, and he's bothered by seeing his soldiers having to scavenge for food or dying of hunger and scurvy more than they're dying from battle wounds. So what he does is he has the French military offer up 12,000 francs for anyone to invent a new way to preserve food to supply his army. And his soldiers respect him because he looks out for them, and he wins. Napoleon is then elected as a member of the French Academy of Science, and he sends 167 scientists, mathematicians, and chemists out on an Egyptian expedition resulting in the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, which was the first bilingual text from ancient Egypt found in modern days. There's a reason why that language teaching program is named after it, and that's because the Rosetta Stone provided the key to understanding ancient hieroglyphics. It has the same message written on it three times in three different languages, one of which is Greek. From there they were able to identify names of some rulers that were mentioned on this stone tablet and learned that the whole thing was actually a proclamation from King Ptolemy V from the year 196 BCE. And once this was recognized, linguists then went back and referred to the ancient spellings and they discovered that hieroglyphics are used phonetically. They represent sound. I wonder if that's why they're called Phoenicians. Anyway, after the expedition is over, France loads the Rosetta Stone and some of the other artifacts that they collect on their journey onto their ships, and then they get blockaded by Britain on the Egyptian coast, and they're forced to relinquish everything that they found. And the French Navy says that they'd rather burn everything than surrender it to the English. Britain begs them not to, and after negotiations, France gets to keep all of its natural samples that it found on its Egyptian expedition, but they lose the Rosetta Stone to the British Museum, where it remains to this very day. Now, I'm no Albert Einstein, but it seems to me that just about every single leader of a major global power that's ever lived, ever, has probably got some blood on their hands. So you have to consider any positive things that they bring to the table after you dismiss the fact that they've been responsible for people's deaths. And don't mistake me here. I'm not trying to say that Napoleon was a great guy. He was indeed a glory-starved dictator responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths. But he also brought along major reforms to higher education, tax codes, road and sewer systems, and set up the Banque de France, the first central bank in French history. He also introduces the metric system to France and abolishes the Spanish Inquisition and the Holy Roman Empire by emancipating Jews and Protestants who are living in Catholic countries that have laws that keep them in the ghettos. Napoleon famously said, quote, I will never accept any proposals that will obligate the Jewish people to leave France because to me, the Jews are the same as any other citizen in our country. It takes weakness to chase them out of the country, but it takes strength to assimilate them. After that, 
the Russian Orthodox Church labels him the Antichrist and the enemy of God. In 1800, France regains the Louisiana Territory it had lost to Spain, and it scared the hell out of the United States, who feared he might want to come over and rule New Orleans and free all the slaves. And a good number of Americans thought that we should attack the French in New Orleans, while others thought that it would be easier to simply buy New Orleans from France. But buying it would imply that they had a right to be there in the first place. Now, for the past few years, the United States had a deal with Spain which allowed the United States to use New Orleans for importing and exporting, and they were also granted use of the Mississippi River. But two years ago, they revoked it. So then, the United States tries to buy New Orleans from Spain, but they reject the offer, and Spain tells America to go deal with France. And a couple of years later, in 1803... Britain declares war on France, and Napoleon realizes that he neither has the finance nor the manpower to defend this territory, and he's ready to talk Turkey with the Americans. So, President Thomas Jefferson sends James Monroe to Paris to negotiate for New Orleans at the price of $10 million. And he's also told that if the negotiations fail in Paris, to then get on a boat sailed to the United Kingdom and form an alliance with the British. Even though $10 million was authorized for the purchase of Louisiana, the American diplomats who were negotiating in Paris are shocked when France instead offers up 828,000 square miles, which includes land in Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, in parts of North Dakota, South Dakota, New Mexico, Texas, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and Louisiana west of the Mississippi River. And, of course, New Orleans. And also parts of Alberta and Saskatchewan. And all of this for the price of $15 million. Only $5 million more than they were originally approved to spend. And that $15 million translates to 50 million francs and the cancellation of 18 million francs of French debt. At the bargain basement price of three cents per acre, the United States doubles its size overnight. Crazy Napoleon's prices are insane! The next year, Pope Pius VII officially crowns Napoleon as Emperor of France at Notre Dame. And this is when all of the reforms started coming, and the Napoleonic Code is established to modernize laws in French-ruled territories by removing religious content and dividing law into people, property, getting property, and civil procedure. Before this time, France had no single set of laws. Now, Napoleon changed things so that laws were made clear, and they could only be enforced if they had been published. There was no such thing as secret laws anymore, and you were innocent until you were proven guilty. He was also in favor of jury trials, and he set the tone for laws in the Netherlands, Belgium, Portugal, and Poland. As Napoleon gains more and more power, Britain signs an alliance against Napoleon, whom they nicknamed Boney, with Russia. 
Austria also requests to join the alliance to seek revenge for past French invasions. In a quick scattered curiosity about Boney, there was this nursery rhyme that cautioned disobedient kids that Bonaparte eats naughty children. This nursery rhyme's monster's name? The Bogeyman? The Boogeyman? Bonaparte? Boney? Boogie? Anyway, it would make more sense if you saw the spelling. Now, Napoleon knows his fleet is no match for the Royal Navy in head-to-head combat, so he uses his navy as a diversion to keep the British forces busy while he focuses on his land campaign through Europe. Bonaparte uses this tactic of making his army appear weaker than it is to lure the Russians and the Austrians to engage in battle where he soundly defeats them and signs an armistice with Austria after the fall of Vienna. Austria is forced to give up territory in Italy, Bavaria, and Germany. Napoleon later says that this was the best that he ever fought and some historians argue that this was the turning point of his conquest starting to be less for the glory of France and more for his own military glory and control over Europe. And Napoleon exhibits this control by setting up the Confederation of the Rhine in order to use German states as a kind of a a buffer zone between France and Central Europe which effectively killed the Holy Roman Empire and had the Prussians worried that they were next. So Prussia's leader, Frederick William III, preemptively challenges France to some war, which proves to be a terribly calculated move. Prussia loses 2,000 cannons and 140,000 soldiers, and that's still not enough to get Frederick William III to negotiate with France so he decides to keep fighting until his ally Russia arrives. Napoleon sets up the Continental System, which says that European countries cannot trade with Britain anymore, a statute which was constantly violated by about every single country that it was inflicted upon. Now, when the Russians finally arrive to the fight and start marching through Poland, the Russians and the French duke it out for four months before giving Napoleon yet another victory and another forced peace treaty. And the first thing that Tsar Alexander I of Russia said to Napoleon at the peace signing was, I hate the English as much as you do. And Russia gets off pretty easy here. They only have to agree to join the continental system and not trade with Britain and give up the Ionian Islands. Prussia, on the other hand, gets a much harsher punishment. They lose half of their territory, and in an instant, Napoleon creates a new kingdom on their land called Westphalia, and he makes his younger brother Jerome the king. King Jerome Bonaparte of Westphalia. Bet you never heard of him. Neither have I. So Prussia is humiliated. And Napoleon is cautious of his new Russian buddy Alexander, who abandoned his ally so quickly to the French and would end up violating the treaty repeatedly over the next few years. But the Tsar is not alone. Portugal has also resumed trading with Britain, and when France finds out, Napoleon then sends an army of 24,000 troops to get involved in another multi-years occupation. And Spain is next on the chopping block who also gets a new king in the form of one of Napoleon's brothers, Joseph Bonaparte. 
and Napoleon just keeps spreading his forces thinner and further away from Paris and Central Europe, and he's starting to concern himself with his legacy because his wife, Josephine, whom he loved deeply, had still not given him an heir. And even though he will mourn her death years later in deep depression where he secludes himself in a room, he divorces her and marries the Archduchess Marie-Louise of Austria in an effort to not only pass on his beautiful baby blues, but also to firm up the alliance that he made with Frederick William III. Do you remember the contest the French army had back in 1795 for someone to invent a new way to preserve food for the prize of 12,000 francs? Well, in 1810, a Parisian inventor named Nicolas Appert otherwise known as the father of canning, enters his airtight food preservation invention and wins. A pair had assumed correctly that food, like wine, can spoil if it gets exposed to air. Now, mind you, this is 50 years before Pasteur comes up with his pasteurization theory. And what a pair does is he puts food in glass jars and he seals them with a cork, and then he covers them in wax, and then he puts it into boiling water, thus killing everything inside and making it airtight. And to test it out, his food was put on a ship with Napoleon's navy for four months, and every single sample passed the test, staying perfectly intact and fresh. A pair accepted the award on the condition that his invention be made public. And right after that, he puts out a cookbook for using preserved food called L'Art de Conserver les Substances Animales et Vegetables, or The Art of Preserving Animal and Vegetable Substances for Many Years. Sounds better in French, right? I mean, not my French. My French sucks, but you know, sorry for any of you French-speaking people out there. I'm doing my best. <laughs> and since 1942... The Chicago section of the Institute of Food Technologies gives the Nicholas Appert Award for Lifetime Achievement in Food Technology every year. And at the same time that Appert's invention comes out, another Frenchman who's working as a British merchant named Peter Durand is given a patent for the tin can by King George III. And his food was also sent out to sea for four months, but his was, of course, with the Royal Navy instead of the French Navy. And he also passed the test. Way to go, guys. In 1811, Marie-Louise gives birth to a baby boy who we all know as Napoleon II, or Napoleon II. And while Boney is all tied up being a new father... Russian noblemen are pressuring the Tsar Alexander to break the alliance with France because of the continental system that's preventing trade with Britain. And they want to invade the French Empire by recapturing Poland. And the first step that Russian officials make is trying to ally up with Prussia, but they get rejected at first. But Prussia quickly changes their mind when they realize that France is going to use their borders to launch an attack no matter which side that they were on. So, they sign a secret agreement that's struck up between Russia and Prussia, but the terms of the agreement are kind of shaky, and Russia is insinuating that, you know, they'll protect Prussia, but only if the Prussian generals perform perfectly to their satisfaction. 
And with the amounting pressure that they felt from Moscow and the reality that if they did this, that Napoleon will invade, Prussia backs out of the deal with Russia and turns around and supplies the Grand Army with horses, provisions, and over 20,000 troops. And in a disgusted protest of honor, 300 Prussian officers resign their posts immediately and go off to live in exile in Russia or England or Spain, thus forming the Franco-Prussian alliance, which, as I mentioned before, is also called the Treaty of Paris, except this one is signed by Napoleon and Frederick William III against Russia. It is short-lived, however, when Prussia threatens to sign a separate armistice with Russia if France doesn't pay them 90 million francs and give back territories that they lost in past wars. Napoleon respectfully declines and invades Prussia and ignores all advice not to open a fifth front by invading Russia, but does so anyway under the pretense that he's protecting Poland from Russia, calling it the Second Polish War the First Polish War, also being between Poland and Russia. Now, Warsaw just wanted to be its own independent country, which Napoleon rejects outright. Now, Boney's plan is to stop Alexander from trading with the British, and he hopes that the United Kingdom will then sue for peace. And when Napoleon finally spots the Russian army, he pursues them across the Niemen River, while the Russian troops keep retreating further and further east. Now, the Tsar's plan was simple. Just keep retreating further and deeper into Russia, burning villages, farms, and crops along the way, and denying the invaders food and shelter that wasn't being supplied from France. These scorched-earth tactics shocked the French soldiers, who would never dream of doing such a thing to their own farms and towns. Now, This whole ordeal starts in June, June 24th to be exact, and it lasts for six months. And Boney was so convinced that Russia was just going to surrender just like they did before that he hadn't even considered the fact that his army might be wearing summer fatigues in the middle of a Russian winter. And while his soldiers were accustomed to foraging and hunting for themselves while they were at war, the land in Europe is a lot more fertile than the land in Russia. And the good land that you can find in Russia has all been burned to the ground. And the Grand Army begins to starve and freeze to death. Many of their horses freeze to death simply because they don't have any winter shoes. The only upside to the loss of a horse was that they got to have meat for dinner. Although there was a price for the meal, because without the horses, they had to abandon tons of heavy artillery. And this results in tons of Polish and Spanish and Portuguese soldiers to go AWOL from the French army, and then they began devastating villages and farms that hadn't yet been destroyed by the Russians. But eager as ever to get his victory, Napoleon presses on and finally arrives in Moscow, only to find that it is completely evacuated. Even the prisons were empty. Now, Napoleon had expected to be greeted by Tsar Alexander I, as was customary when successfully capturing a city, and to receive a ceremonial surrender with all the glory and honor that comes along with it. Napoleon feels robbed of his victory, and to add insult to injury, before Moscow was evacuated, it was booby-trapped with fuses to burn the whole city down. 
four-fifths of the city is destroyed in the first two nights as the Grand Army frantically tries to hold on to what they've gained by putting out fires. Napoleon is pissed, and he decides to leave Moscow and continue after Russian forces deeper and deeper into the country. Until December 14th, when Napoleon's supply line simply couldn't keep his starving, freezing, waning army going anymore. And they finally retreat back to Paris, minus 10,000 dead horses, only 110,000 of the 615,000 that Napoleon brought into Russia make it back to France. And Napoleon's reputation as a military genius is forever weakened. Now, Russia suffered some pretty terrible losses as well. In addition to 150,000 soldiers, they lost hundreds of thousands of civilians and the loss of countless farms, livestock, crops, villages, and Moscow. After this, both countries take a year off from warring to rebuild their militaries. Napoleon manages to enlist about 350,000 soldiers and takes command in Germany, while Russia joins a coalition against France that includes Austria, Prussia, Sweden, Great Britain, Portugal, and Spain. And Napoleon's army starts really strong, and they win a series of battles. But slowly, the numbers of these new allied forces began to decimate the French. Napoleon suffers 90,000 casualties in three months. In November, the Allies offer terms of peace in the Frankfurt Proposals, which says that Napoleon could keep being Emperor of France, but only of its natural borders, which includes Belgium, Rhineland, and Savoy. But that's it. He would have to give up all of his power over the Netherlands, Spain, and huge parts of Germany and Italy. And Napoleon gets together with his advisors, and they say to him, listen, this is the best deal that you're going to get. And, in true Napoleonic fashion, he ignores them and rejects the deal and keeps fighting the war. And he gets on another winning streak for about a month or so. But, as before, the numbers just keep surmounting against him, and eventually... He's forced to go back to the Allies and to accept the deal that they offered him before. But then they reject him and offer even harsher terms. Now the deal only includes France's boundaries as of the year 1791, which would remove Belgium from the equation. But he could still be Emperor of France. And Napoleon denies these new terms as well. And then the British get even harsher by demanding that Napoleon has to be removed completely, which Napoleon Bonaparte, of course, will not accept, and he marches his paltry force of 70,000 men back towards France, fighting allies along the way and gaining another string of victories. But again, he cannot keep up the momentum against such surmounting numbers, and the leaders of France end up surrendering to the allies in March of 1814. And once they get there, Alexander reassures the people of France that they have no beef with the French people and that they're only there for Napoleon and that they would offer the French people a peace deal if they remove Napoleon from power, which they do. And when Napoleon learns the news, he tries to take his army to go and march on Paris. But then his officers mutiny him. And Napoleon abdicates. And he tries to get his son put in charge of the family business, which, of course, the Allies won't allow. 
And on April 6, Napoleon is out of power and must go to the Mediterranean island of Elba with the population of 12,000 natives. The British do concede a little. Napoleon is allowed to keep the title of emperor, and he was allowed to be the sovereign of the island of Elba. And when he gets there, he tries to commit suicide with this pill that he'd been carrying around since he left Russia, but it doesn't work anymore because over time the poison got weaker. And while he's in exile in Elba, his wife and son go to Austria. Shortly after his arrival on Elba, Napoleon gets right back to what he's good at doing, and he organizes an army and a navy. And he starts building roads, and introduces modern farming techniques, and utilized the iron mines that were there, and started to take control of education, and legal matters. And after all of these achievements, 10 months into his sentence, Napoleon escapes Elba by hiding in the brig of a ship for two days before landing in France. And when he gets there, he's met by the French 5th Regiment, and Napoleon gets off of his horse, and he yells, Here I am. Kill your emperor if you wish. And the soldiers look at each other, and then they shout, Vive la Empereur! And Napoleon gets on his horse, and he marches this army to Paris, and he gets to be the Emperor of France again, briefly, for his famous Hundred Days. When Great Britain and Russia and Prussia all find out about this, all of them send troops to France and finally stomp out Napoleon on June 18th, 1815, during the Battle of Waterloo, which is, of course, Napoleon's final battle. Napoleon returns to Paris, and he finds that the people and the government there have rejected him, and the Prussian army has been ordered to capture him dead or alive. So, with the writing on the wall, on June 22nd, Napoleon abdicates to his son and even considers escaping to the United States. But, in the end... He was eventually exiled again, this time to the island of St. Helena, where the cocky little emperor from Corsica, who is actually not as short as movies and Bugs Bunny would make him out to be due to an error that was on his death certificate that listed him as five foot two instead of five foot six, which was actually a pretty average height at the time, he will spend the last six years of his life here. This dictator who held a monopoly on Europe for a decade and was responsible for unimaginable numbers of deaths, also managed to institute order and unification in Europe by ending the Spanish Inquisition, and helping to found modern Germany by consolidating 300 states into 50. And even after he was removed from power, his Napoleonic code remained intact in countries that he ruled, like Belgium and the Netherlands and parts of Germany and Italy and also influenced laws in Louisiana, the Dominican Republic, and Quebec because they work so well. And amidst all this, he still finds time to travel to the future and back to ride water slides, eat ice cream at Ziggy Piggy, and help Bill and Ted pass their history final after a most excellent warfare demonstration. Party on, dudes!
I grew up in the northwest suburbs, 30 miles outside of Chicago. If you couldn't tell from my hard A accent. Go Cubs, by the way. I mean, can we just take a moment to acknowledge how awesome it was when the Cubs won the World Series last year? Thank you. Now, I graduated from Illinois State University, or ISU, or as Northwestern alumni would call it, I screwed up. Now, I would have loved to have gone to Northwestern University. Unfortunately, the $250 scholarship they offered me to join their music theater program was barely enough to cover the books. But I don't discredit ISU. The Steppenwolf Theater was founded by many ISU alumni, including Gary Sinise, Lori Metcalf, and John Malkovich. ISU is located two hours southwest of the Windy City, off of I-55 South, amidst the cornfields in Normal, Illinois. That's right, Normal, Illinois. And you know, over the years, so many people have asked me what that's all about, and I never until doing research for this podcast episode, knew why it was called Normal Illinois. I mean, I wish I had the thirst for knowledge then that I have now. But of course, in college, my thirst was more beer-related. Although, in my defense, when I was in college, I had dial-up internet. Dial-up. Remember dial-up? That you had to plug in through your landline? You actually had to have a landline at your house? And remember the noise? I mean, ugh. and if you don't remember that noise, well, congratulations, you're young. Now, the first normal school, in quotation marks, was the Institute of the Brothers of the Christina Schools, established in 1685 in France. And its purpose as a normal school was to train high school graduates to be teachers. Vermont opened the first public normal school in the United States in 1823. And 34 years later, the state of Illinois passed an act to build a normal school of their own. And after a few towns put in bids, the town of North Bloomington won and was renamed Normal, Illinois. It's also called Bloomington Normal. And a couple other universities that started out as normal schools are UCLA, Southern Illinois University, and Northern Illinois University, which was founded on 63 acres of land donated from the man who is legally recognized as the inventor of barbed wire, Mr. Joseph Glidden, for whom the town of Glidden, Iowa is named. And the Glidden House Ranch in DeKalb, Illinois, is halfway between Chicago, Illinois, and Normal, Illinois. Road trip! Now, remember Mr. Glidden's name because he's going to play a major role in the rest of this podcast. And this former sheriff of DeKalb County's simple invention of adding barbs to smooth wire and twisting them on using a coffee mill and a grindstone and wrapping a double wire around it was Napoleonic in its effect of the world of commerce and monopolies by taming the South disenfranchising cowboys, and ushered in a whole new era of robber barons, scalawags, carpetbaggers, gangsters, and will be the symbol of oppression and horror as it decorates prison fences, trenches in warfare, the Berlin Wall, and the baseball bats of Negan and Mick Foley. 
But back to me for a second. I was a double major in theater and music. And one role I played in my early days as a thespian, encouraging me to pursue theater as a career, was Will Parker in the Rodgers and Hammerstein classic, Oklahoma. And if you aren't familiar with the show, I encourage you to go check out the movie with Shirley Jones and Gordon McRae. It's a beautiful show with beautiful music and dancing and realism. That's right. I said realism in a musical. Now, I won't go into the whole synopsis of the show. That would be an entirely different kind of podcast. But there's a lot of social commentary about the very real and serious issues surrounding the settling of the Great Plains that is addressed in the musical. The confrontational struggles between the farmers, who wanted cowboys and their cattle to stay off their land so their crops aren't trampled or eaten, and the cowboys who want the farmers to get rid of their fences because they make driving cattle more difficult, and in a lot of cases, fatal to open-range ranching, which rely on the natural herding paths of grazing animals, which, of course, go through the most fertile lands for farming. In addition, the desire for statehood, which is felt by everybody, is only achieved when a territory has 100,000 residents. And they sing, territory folks should stick together, territory folks should all be pals. Cowboys dance with the farmers' daughters, farmers dance with the ranchers' gals. Now this seemed to be the prevailing sentiment for most of the communities that sprang up after the free soil movement of 1862 becomes the homestead law, offering up 160 acres of free land on the American frontier with a minimal filing fee to any adult, man or woman, black or white, native or immigrated, who will work and defend the land for five years. Oklahoma is Osage country, and the people get right to hedge fencing by strategically planting Osage orange, which is a 40-foot-tall, thorny bush with bumpy, yellowish fruit that's sometimes called a hedge apple or a horse apple. Osage orange is also called bodar and bowwood and yellowwood and it produces a dense wood that has one of the highest BTUs of any common North American wood. It's two and a half times harder than white oak, and it burns really slow. And the Native Americans use the wood from Osage Orange in their bows and tool handles. In the early 19th century, you could get a horse and a blanket in exchange for an Osage bow. Now, hedge fencing was certainly expensive, but not nearly as expensive as building a wood fence because the Great Plains have very little trees. So all the lumber that you would have to use to build a fence would have to be shipped in from the east. And a scattered curiosity, the biggest Osage orange tree in America is at River Farms in Alexandria, Virginia. Don't geek out too much, Walking Dead fans. I know I already mentioned Negan earlier. And that tree is thought to have been a gift from Thomas Jefferson, who first became aware of the plant after Lewis and Clark bring samples of it back from their Corps of Discovery expedition, along with maps of rivers, animal pelts, and samples of soil quality of the Louisiana Purchase. When Thomas Jefferson was in the process of acquiring the Louisiana Territory, there was a lot of debate as to whether or not the president could even legally do such a thing. You had the Federalists, who are totally against the idea of expansion, and on the other side, you had the Jeffersonians, who love the idea of expansion. But in the end, 
Jefferson wins on the grounds that a president is allowed to sign treaties. And this treaty, in effect, results in Thomas Jefferson being the first president in control of that big of an America. And it wasn't like America was crazy rich either. But you have to admit that even with inflation, the $15 million paid for the Louisiana Territory comes out to only $240 million in today's money, which is still a bargain. And if you're Thomas Jefferson, you have to grab it. Control over the Mississippi and New Orleans is everything. And if you don't have to pay tolls to Spain or France to use the rivers, all the better. Though there is still the issue of the true owners of the land, the Native Americans, who were no doubt surprised to learn that their homes had been sold from underneath them yet again. It's no secret that the tension between the Native people of America and the Europeans who settled amongst them were always prevalent. A particularly dangerous path, known as Wilderness Road, through the Cumberland Gap between Virginia and Kentucky is a site where Indians once killed over a hundred people trying to migrate through in 1874. One of the unfortunate settlers who was brutally scalped outside of Louisville, Kentucky, the grandfather of future president, Abraham Lincoln. Thomas Jefferson understands that it is important to learn as much as he can about this awesome new area he has just obtained, and he sends Meriwether Lewis and William Clark and a group of U.S. Army volunteers to explore and communicate with the native people who currently reside between St. Louis along the Missouri River to the Pacific Coast. And Jefferson gives them these specially minted Indian peace medals that have his face, you know, embedded on it. And, and, and they're told to offer it to Indian chiefs that they meet along the way to demonstrate sovereignty over the lands. And along with that, they give them a bunch of gift bundles and mirrors and just different things that they can trade with the Indians and can be used in negotiations or to ease tensions with any natives that they might encounter they actually will make contact with two dozen Indian nations by the end of their journey. And, and before I continue, please forgive me for using the term Indian. I know that that is offensive to many people, um, and I will try to say Native American as many times as I can. But, but when reading through history, you sometimes come across the terms that they used, and I don't mean in disrespect. Now, the Lewis and Clark expedition lasts two years, and was launched with several different goals in mind, the first of which was to map out the new territory and find the best water routes across the country for the purpose of commerce, and to get people to settle and defend the land there. Jefferson always understood the value of knowledge. He's even famously known to have one of the best libraries of the time. And so he also orders scientific and economic details about the Louisiana Territory as well. And in the first two weeks of the expedition, Lewis and Clark arrive at the Osage River and head towards Sioux Territory, where Lewis supposedly wraps a newborn Sioux baby in a U.S. flag and, and declares him an American. Also along the way, they discover bison and prairie dogs and antelope, which they call a prairie goat, and grizzly bears, too. As you might imagine, 
language barriers led to a few confused armed confrontations between these explorers and the Sioux Indians, who demanded payment of a boat in exchange for their guidance and a toll upriver and to avoid confrontation. Soon after this, they meet a Mandan chief and built Fort Mandan just in time for Christmas Eve, and they will camp there for the winter. And a scattered curiosity, during that winter, on February 11th, 1805, while they're at Fort Mandan, Meriwether assists in the delivery of Sacagawea's baby. Now, I know you all have heard of Sacagawea, and she did act as a Shoshone interpreter for the expedition, along with her husband. But another quality that she brought to the table was approachability. Unfamiliar tribes would likely be less threatened by a group of white settlers who are traveling with a Native American woman holding a baby, and they encounter some Shoshone people in August and negotiate for 29 horses to pass over the Rocky Mountains along with a guide named Old Toby. And 10 days later, they pass all the way through the area of land that's included with the Louisiana Purchase and enter the long-disputed Oregon country meet the Salish tribe and buy 13 horses, then meet the Nez Perce tribe, and from October to December, they travel down Clearwater River, Snake River, and Columbia to finally see the Pacific Ocean in time to build their second Christmas settlement at Fort Clatsop. Then they get moving again in March, and shortly thereafter, Lewis's best friend, no, not William Clark, but Seaman the dog, is kidnapped by natives. Now, they catch up with him shortly thereafter. Don't worry, the dog is fine. I mean, not anymore. He's obviously dead now, but at the time, he's fine. And when the dog is safely retrieved, Lewis warns the chief that any more incidents like this would result in death. Now, this is not the first skirmish that will occur between the expedition and the natives. In July, tribe members of the Pekingese Nation steal rifles from Lewis's group and fighting breaks out, resulting in the death of two Indians. Lewis was also shot on the expedition in the thigh by one of his own men who mistook him for an elk. No word on whether or not he was related to Dick Cheney. One thing that was noted along the journey in the many, many notebooks that were also supplied by President Jefferson was that most of the native tribes were happy to trade with the white man, just as they had been doing with the French and Spanish for years, but that the tribes themselves were more often warring with each other. Most notably, the Sioux, who had nearly wiped out scores of tribes along the Missouri River. At the end of the expedition, Thomas Jefferson has to justify the spending that he's done on both it and the entire Louisiana Purchase to Congress and it was clear that the only way to hold on to this territory was to settle it. In addition, the government wanted to grow the economy by selling the land at cheap prices to attract buyers, but not so cheap that they couldn't pay off the national debt. This is the time when a lot of land is bought up by rich southern slave owners, while other land was simply occupied with natives, squatters, and the poor unfortunate souls who were sold fake leases at rock-bottom prices by con men. And because this new territory was largely unregulated, it led to all sorts of altercations between everybody that stood to lose their piece of the pie of the Louisiana Territory. By 1816, tensions had gotten so high that when Andrew Jackson was found exploring in Florida, 
Britain and Spain are incensed and they declare it an invasion, thus beginning the first of three Seminole Wars, also called the Florida Wars. Now remember, Britain and Spain are allied against Napoleon at this time. So when Florida, which is still Spain's territory, is invaded, Britain is obliged to assist, and they do so by enlisting members of the Seminole tribes of Florida to fight for Spain and their own interests. Now, the real bummer about all this is the fact that when Andrew Jackson invades Florida, the Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams, was in the process of negotiating with Spain to buy Florida. But after Jackson crosses the borders, the deal is off and the war is on for three years. And in the end, America apologizes for the invasion and Spain cedes Florida to the United States. And right away, people were starting to get scared that Andrew Jackson might evolve into a Napoleon and take over the country as a military dictator. But I guess they weren't too scared because he will be elected president in about a decade from now and will pass the Indian Removal Act to relocate all of the Indians residing east of the Mississippi River. The very next year, Britain introduced to the United States something that was actually embraced by the American population, and that is Peter Durand's modified version of Nicholas Appert's invention from eight years earlier in France, the tin can. The American patent for preserving food and vessels of tin will be signed by President James Monroe seven years later. But the star of this British invasion finally made the prospect of packing up a wagon and moving west and staking a claim on the Great Plains a much more conceivable venture. No longer would you have to put up provisions. Food was available all year long. And exotic foods were being tried for the first time as well. These first cans were hard to make and were heavy. They were made of iron and then dipped in molten tin. And here is an almost unbelievable scattered curiosity. It took another 30 years for someone to invent the can opener. Until 1855, the instructions for opening a can that was printed on the outside of the tin can was to use a hammer and chisel. French soldiers used their bayonets to open cans. And when the first can opener finally arrives, it's little more than a modified knife. It has sort of a, a lobster claw, crescent shape, and has a wooden handle. But from this point on, the evolution of the can opener takes off and will be paramount for soldiers from the Civil War to the World Wars, where soldiers will wear can openers around their necks. There are over 3,000 patents for can openers in existence today. While America is dealing with native people in its newly gained territory, a French naval officer, who is stationed in an area of what used to be the Ottoman Empire, is exploring ruins on the island of Milos with the help of a local peasant farmer when they discover the iconic marble beauty from 130 BCE, Aphrodite of Milos, the Venus de Milo and they instantly recognize its rarity, and the officer goes back to his superior to get the ball rolling to purchase this relic for France. And the French ambassador to Turkey doesn't get the information of her discovery very quickly, and the peasant farmer who found the statue starts getting pressure to sell it to the Sultan of Constantinople. 
now called Istanbul in Turkey. And it wasn't until the artifact was being loaded onto a ship heading to Turkey that the French ambassador's representative arrived to stop the sale of the Venus de Milo to Turkey and claims her for France, where she still stands in the Louvre today. Scattered curiosity, when they found the Venus de Milo, she had arms. The arms were lost somewhere along the way back to France. The seven-year-long Second Seminole War starts in 1835 at a place called Hickory Sink when a group of white ranchers are looking for their lost cattle and they come across a group of Indians eating ribs around a fire that they claim to be their own cattle. And the Indians are whipped and they retaliate and the whole thing ends up with three white ranchers hurt and one dead Native American the governor of Florida declares that he wants all the Indians out of Florida and the war is back on with the Seminoles who are using the landscape to their advantage and employing guerrilla tactics against the United States. However, after years of fighting, the United States Army just started destroying villages and farms to try to just devastate and starve the natives out with the same scorched earth tactics that worked so well on Napoleon. And some of the Seminole leaders felt so much pressure from the United States and from their people who they were just trying to protect and find a place to live for. Many of these chiefs are forced to sign the Treaty of Payne's Landing, where tribes were paid to relocate from Florida. And most of them travel to the Indian territory of our favorite musical, Oklahoma. And one Seminole chief that sold out to the United States was actually captured by another tribe and they took the money that he got from selling all of his cattle and scattered it over his dead body. They didn't put that scene in the musical. It'd be a very different show if they did. Congress then passes the Armed Occupation Act, which gives free land to anyone who worked and defended it from Native Americans which was real good news to a young repairman who was known for using a self-scouring steel plow that he designed. You see, most of the farmers of the time used iron or wood, but steel was superior, and this young man discovered that there were people who wanted to buy his plow. A lot of people. John Deere was founded in Grand Detour, Illinois in 1837, where it has had the same Leaping Deer logo for over 155 years. The first year in business, he sold 100 plows. The next year, that number would quadruple. In just one decade, John Deere decided to move to a bigger factory that was located in Moline, Illinois, right near the railroad, where he could produce 200 plows a month. And as the railroad stretched further through the country, businesses and towns find profits and savings by being located near the train depots. And the railroad owners are quite aware of this, and they buy up a ton of this land from the government and then turn around and sell it at premium prices. Just in time for the gold rush of 1849, which, as we all know, causes a huge migration westward in the United States and also makes Levi Strauss a fashion superstar when he starts selling jeans to miners and cowboys on the western frontier. And back east, the street gangs of Five Points, New York, near the Bowery, are getting involved in theater. Being an actor living in New York City for the past 14 years, I cannot believe 
that I have never heard the story that I'm about to tell you. On May 10th, 1849, in New York City, the Astor Place riot happens at the Astor Opera House, which is no longer there. But when it was there, it was located right by the public theater on Lafayette Street between Astor Place and 8th Street. And for those of you that might not be familiar with the public theater of New York City, um, that's the same theater that puts on Shakespeare in the park in Central Park and is also where the smash hit musical Hamilton got its start. So this is the part of the city that we're talking about. Now, Shakespeare's plays have always been accessible to people from peasants to kings. And Shakespeare himself is responsible for countless turns of phrases that we still use today, like in a pickle, bated breath, laughing stock, dead as a doornail, one fell swoop, to wear my heart upon my sleeve, a wild goose chase, and my personal favorite, the beast with two backs, referring to two people having sex. By the mid-1800s, Shakespeare's plays are beloved across the globe, especially in England, the country that bore him. Now, the Astor Place riot stems from a rivalry between two famous Shakespearean actors of the time. There was the American actor, Edwin Forrest, and the English thespian, Charles McCready. It might actually surprise you to hear that theater riots were not an entirely uncommon occurrence, but most of them don't result in any deaths or the need for the state militia. At the height of the animosity between these two actors, so too was the attitude towards the British people altogether in America. And oftentimes, British actors would literally be targets for audiences to throw rotten food at. Edwin and Forrest were touring the country in an effort to be the darling of the bard, the great big bad Billy Shakes, and they start playing the same roles on their respective tours to kind of challenge each other to an act-off. And that's about as civil as this rivalry gets. Now, one evening, Edwin Forrest has the day off, and he actually goes to see McCready star in Hamlet. And he gets right into the front row, and he's sitting there, and he heckles him and hisses at him the whole show. And he even arranged for half of a sheep carcass to be thrown at him while he was on stage. And as you might imagine, the performance is a disaster. McCready publicly declares that Forrest has no taste. And as if that wasn't bad enough, the Irish gangs of New York decided to get involved in the rivalry. Not so much because of their love for the performing arts, but they also hate the British. And at a time where poor Irish immigrants were also unwelcomed by many Americans, the two cultures finally found a common enemy in McCready. So when the British actor is booked to do Hamlet at the ritzy, high-class Astor Opera House, the gangsters buy a bunch of tickets for his show, and then they start handing them out for free to people that were supporters of Forrest. They pack the house and stop the show from all the hissing and groaning and throwing apples and rotten eggs and lemons, and bottles, and shoes, and McCready finally has had enough. He's packing it up, 
and he's getting ready to leave the United States, but was persuaded to stay by a couple of upper-class Americans who condemned the actions of these ruffians and were sympathetic to the star's humiliation, namely authors Washington Irving and Herman Melville. McCready agrees to stay, and on the very next day, Edwin's fans are once again organizing in bars and restaurants and handing out free tickets to McCready's show, which the producers must have loved. No bad press, right? So news of the previous night was all the gossip on the Bowery and was starting to concern the New York police chief who had anticipated that something bigger might be coming. wonder if he heard anything in the streets. And he calls the state militia in to be brought outside of the Astor Opera House as a precaution. At 7.30 p.m., 10,000 people flooded the streets and tried to get into the theater by throwing stones and gang-rushing the police and even trying to set the theater on fire. And all the while, the show is going on inside while all this is happening on the outside. Because as you know, the show must go on. So after the curtain call, McCready does an Irish exit out the stage door of the now aptly named Disaster Place. And outside, things have spiraled so out of control that the soldiers of the state militia start firing warning shots into the air for the crowds to disperse. At first... But then, one of those soldiers fired on the crowd, causing other soldiers to fire on the crowd, which no doubt increased all the chaos of people running around, and by the time militia regained control of the situation, 25 people were dead, and 120 others injured, and most of the deceased were just innocent bystanders. The public is outraged by the actions taken by the state militia. I mean, they were just trying to have a good old-fashioned theater riot, you know? <laughs> Man, these actors of the 1850s were so violent. Too bad John Wilkes Booth didn't grab a prop gun. This was the first time ever that the New York State Militia had to be called into the city to police an event. Now, if you want to see a hilarious version of this story, check out Drunk History on Comedy Central. Comedian Alan McLeod's version of this is far more entertaining than my own. I guess he's a Forrest while I'm more of a Charles. But this was nothing compared to the far more dramatic and senseless violence that will keep America entertained for the next two decades. The third installment of the Florida Wars, or Seminole Wars, comes in 1855, and it's just more of the same rhetoric and destruction that we saw in the previous two conflicts. Americans want land with Americans on it and are willing to destroy Seminole plantations to get it. So even more tribes move into the Oklahoma Territory, where they continue to have interactions with open-range cattlemen in the area. Now, I know things are a lot different today, but when I was a kid, I'm starting to sound like an old man when I was a kid, but... I remember when I was a kid, running around in my backyard with my friends, with a plastic gun, which was painted like a gun, silver and black, not bright green or orange or yellow or something like they're required to do today, which, by the way, I think is a good idea. I'm not saying that's a bad idea. I'm just saying times have changed. When I was a kid, the toy guns looked a lot more like real guns, and we'd be playing 
cowboys and Indians. And, you know, in Cowboys and Indians, you take sides. You're either a cowboy or an Indian, and you chase each other around and pretend to shoot each other. And a lot of that scenario that we have in our mind about cowboys versus Indians, that all comes from television shows and movies. Because for the most part, cowboys and Indians had a pretty good relationship. The Territory Folks tune that I was poorly singing earlier is basically their unofficial theme song. And oftentimes, when cowboys were driving their cattle through Native American lands, they would just pay a toll to the tribes so that they could safely drive the cattle through. And probably made sleeping there much easier to do because you weren't worried that you were going to get attacked in the middle of the night. And they also found trading with each other to be mutually beneficial. Indians were more likely to attack stagecoaches and covered wagons instead. Probably one reason for this is the fact that the cowboys didn't settle these lands. They just passed through with their cattle, and sometimes some of those cows would go astray and then could be hunted and used by the Indians. The first cowboys, or vaqueros, were Spanish cattlemen who brought longhorn ranching to the southwest in the 17th century. And a cowboy was paid between $30 and $40 a month and would usually do a spring drive and an autumn drive with each one of the drives lasting between three and four months. And the driving party had a ratio of about one cowboy for every 250 cattle. And this is really the time when the separation between north and south was slowly becoming a point of contention. Because even though you had all of these rich slave owners and cattle owners in the south, most of the major railroads are in the north. So a steer that's worth $4 in Texas becomes a $40 steer by the time a cowboy drives it 800 miles to the nearest train depot in Kansas. And speaking of the train depot in Kansas, the character I played in Oklahoma was that of the young cowhand, Will Parker. And he has this big entrance when, when he's returning home on the train from Kansas City the big city, and he sings about all the wonderful things that he sees there, and he's mispronouncing words like burlicue instead of burlesque, and radiator instead of radiator, and he's marveled by a skyscraper that was seven stories high. I mean, these were the things that were happening. All these train depots had these marvelous big cities just springing up around them and, and quickly, too. And so for a time... Being a cowhand was so lucrative, many of them retired after just seven years. With such wide spaces of open range, cowboys could easily drive free-range cattle through their instinctual grazing paths. But as more people from the north and the east started settling further south and west, fences began to slowly appear. The Osage Orange hedge fencing we discussed earlier certainly contributed to the slow pace of fencing. I mean, it took time for it to grow. But also the fact that the cost of fencing in 2,500 acres at the time would have cost a farmer $4,000, which is equivalent to $75,000 today. It was easier and cheaper to just fence cattle out of small farms than it was to fence them in to a large ranch. Plus, free-range cattle tended to be a lot healthier 
and had more calves along the way because the cows were naturally migrating to the grass and water that they would do even if there wasn't cowboys there driving them. And water is scarce in the West. And because each steer had such a huge price tag on it, that's why branding was so important. So you could ID the cow's owner on the open range. And any unbranded cattle, which they called mavericks, belonged to whoever caught them, giving cattle rustlers a reason to take advantage of the one cowboy per 250 cattle thing. And some people began to change their minds about fencing. And these fences would continue to slowly grow through the Civil War and create a conflict of their own called the Fence Wars, which will set the precedent for some of the open-range laws that still exist to this day in some parts of the country. Modified, of course, to reflect modern times. To explain a little bit, open-range land is where cattle live free no matter who the owner of the cattle or who the owner of the land is. As of 2017, open-range laws state that people who want animals to stay off of their property have to put up fences. And this includes public roads. And in parts of America, we have open range district and herd range districts. An open range is when people put up fences to keep animals off of their property, while the herd districts fence them in. For example, in Arizona, cattle must be fenced in when they are located in incorporated areas, but not when they're in the suburbs. And in Idaho, which is an open range state, the cattle have the right of way, which means if you hit and kill a cow with your car, you, the driver, are liable for the cost of the cow and repair to your car. But if you were to hit a cow in a herd district where the owner of the animal has to build a fence, they would be liable. Do you have cow insurance? A scattered curiosity, in New Zealand, the fences there have to be built with a passageway for dogs because dogs are the primary animal that drive their livestock. Let's head back east for a moment, where we have a young man by the name of J.P. Morgan going into the family business of finance with his father, and he will quickly join an elite group of successful businessmen of the era whose names we recognize to this very day. The exclusive club of robber barons. Now, don't misunderstand me here. There was not an actual group called the robber barons. But in 1859, the New York Times uses the word robber baron to describe railroad mogul Cornelius Vanderbilt, who had been accused of using Andrew Jackson's popularity to get support for his business. And once he was in business, he just started buying up competing rail lines and then cutting the fares on the competing lines to drive down the stocks and then take over. This practice of monopolization was popular amongst the robber barons. Vanderbilt quickly became head of the Staten Island Railway, and then he bought the Hudson River Railroad, the New York Central Railroad, the Lakeshore and Michigan Southern Railway, and of course, Grand Central Depot. The word robber baron comes to us from medieval Europe, and it combines the word robber, or criminal, with baron, or a rich man of stature. 
And the definition of robber baron that the New York Times uses here is that of a U.S. businessman who uses unscrupulous methods to get rich by robbing his investors and his customers and cheating and stealing and getting into government pockets to undercut the competition. A good example of this, with our young new financier, J.P. Morgan, during the Civil War, J.P. Morgan purchases 5,000 rifles at the price of $3.50 per rifle from this military arsenal. And then he turns right around and sells those weapons to a different American general for $22 per rifle. And on top of that, he even paid another man $300 to take his place in fighting during the Civil War. Other robber barons include John Jacob Astor, Andrew Carnegie, Marshall Field, John Warren Gates, who you'll hear more about in part two of this episode, J.P. Morgan, of course, J.D. Rockefeller, Andrew Mellon, Charles Schwab, and even Vladimir Putin. During the Occupy Wall Street protests of 2011, Bernie Sanders brought the term back when he said, we believe in this country, we love this country. And we'll be damned if we're going to see a handful of robber barons control the future of this country. God, I love Bernie. I love doing Bernie. I hope that nobody's offended by that. I love Bernie Sanders. He was great. Anyway, these business practices that the robber barons execute will continue to be the norm throughout the Civil War right up until the turn of the century when Teddy Roosevelt finally reigns in the shady monopolies of the robber barons. But until then, these robber barons will profit greatly from the policies of the next few years leading up to the Civil War and the laws of Reconstruction after it. Hey, have you ever heard of the Pony Express? Well, the next year and a half is the time frame in which it existed. And the whole system was 150 stations located 15 miles apart from one another. It was established by William Russell in 1860 and was completely disbanded within 18 months because there was no way for it to be able to keep up with the unparalleled superiority of the telegraph. And on top of that, you had to protect riders in the Pony Express from being captured by alternate sides of the Civil War. Watch out, U.S. Postal Service. You're next. When I first mentioned Oklahoma earlier... I brought up the Homestead Act of 1862, where the government gave away 160 acres of free land to anyone who would work it for five years. Well, this law has just passed through Congress after much debate amongst the politicians. John Quincy Adams and the Whigs want to charge money for the valuable land, while the Democrats disagree and argue that it's far more important that the land just be settled. And the Republicans agree with the Democrats, believe it or not. Although the Homestead Act was just one way of acquiring land in 1862. Because the other way to get it was if you owned a railroad. Because Congress has also passed the Pacific Railroad Act. And it granted the land required to travel across country to the railroad companies. But they gave them smaller plots of just 80 acres at a time because the land would be more valuable once the train stations were built. And the railroad companies that took these deals had five years to sell the land after the tracks were laid to the ground. 
And many of the railroad companies just turn around and sell their land right away in an attempt to build cities around their lines, which is actually really good business for everybody. Nebraska, for instance, they sell a lot of its railroad lands in package deals. And what they did was they got these scouts that they would send over to Germany and Scandinavia, and they would offer the people there these package deals that included cheap land and free transit to America for themselves and their entire family and farm supplies. Prices of these packages varied based on access to water, the quality of land, and its proximity to the railroad. So a ton of new farms sprang up with immigrants who took advantage of these bundles. And with the help of these land grants from the Pacific Railroad Act, the country got six major railroads. You had Northern Pacific, Milwaukee Road, and Great Northern, which all ran north to south. Union Pacific and Central Pacific running through the middle of the country, east to southwest-ish, Chicago to New Orleans and then the Santa Fe and the Southern Pacific in the South. The American Civil War changed the course of the country forever, as I'm sure any civil war in any country changes the course of that country forever. And to go into heavy details of the whole four-year conflict and all the repercussions that were caused from it would take an entirely separate podcast on its own, and we're not going to record that today. I will, however, talk about the two derogatory terms to come out of this conflict because it refers to people who we have been and will continue to talk about today until I finally shut up. And those two terms are carpetbaggers and scalawags. And much like the term robber baron, these words sound so old and funny that today their meanings are greatly forgotten. So, let's examine them. A carpetbagger referred to someone, oftentimes a Republican, from the North who moved to the South after the Civil War during Reconstruction to impose their own personal agendas, many of which were lawyers, businessmen, and Union Army vets. And when these carpetbaggers come to the South, they buy up all the plantations and Replace them with factories and railroads and schools. And some of the plantations who were bought by the northerners were then turned into sharecropping land with freedmen, the newly freed black slaves. And these northerners stood to make a fortune without even having to do any work. And you also had Baptist and Methodist missionaries migrating south, along with women from the north who wanted to come down and teach the poor black uneducated youth of the impoverished South. So the post-Civil War Southerners hated carpetbaggers, who, by the way, were named because of the bags they often traveled with. They had this luggage that was made from a carpet-like material. You may have seen something similar like that in an antique store or something. But that's why they were called carpetbaggers. It was the bags that they moved with. And they were criticized for exploiting the poor South, a friend of President James Garfield, named Albion Torger, wrote a book called A Fool's Errand, which is about a carpetbagger who is the enemy of the KKK. Tourget once said, Jesus Christ was a carpetbagger. 
Today, the term carpetbagger is used to call out politicians who relocate and run for office in neighborhoods that they have no ties to. Some of the people who took over abandoned places in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, they were called carpetbaggers. And a scattered curiosity, during World War II, the United States sent supplies to anti-Nazi groups in Europe, which the OSS labeled Operation Carpetbagger. Now, a scalawag was a term that described a white person who was from the South and also supported Reconstruction and the Republicans after the Civil War. So if a carpetbagger is the enemy of the KKK, a scalawag is like Satan's father, Mr. Beezlebub. Originally, scalawag referred to a low-grade farm animal, but the definition changed as it was frequently being used in the newspapers in Alabama and Georgia. Scalawags took advantage of the political system by using the Reconstruction Laws of 1867, which prevented anyone who fought for the Confederacy from voting. A scalawag would go out and solicit votes and support from blacks and people who didn't fight in the war and would provide jobs and favors in exchange for their loyalty. The scalawags are accused of providing bad government that they clearly profit from. And the third thing to come from the war that I wanted to note is the progress of the tin can. Because metal needed to be conserved for the war effort on both sides, and canning manufacturers were all finding ways to make thinner tin cans. And because of all the supplies needed in those cans, production nationwide jumps from 5 million to 20 million by the war's end. And we finally get the first can opener that looks a little something like something that we would recognize today with the round cutting wheel at the top. It's still difficult to use for a lot of people and will be until 1925 when the serrated second wheel is added to this design. But for now, Americans can put down the hammer and chisel. It's been half a century since Napoleon's death on St. Helena and his nephew is all grown up and following in his uncle's footsteps and ruffling his feathers around Europe in the Franco-Prussian War, otherwise known as the Franco-German War, or the War of 1870, pitting Napoleon III of France against Otto von Bismarck, who's leading the northern German states and fighting for Prussia's King Wilhelm I. Now, Napoleon III has got that Bonaparte swagger and... He's demanding compensation for Germany's annexation of Belgium. And both sides in this exchange stand to gain from a victory in this war, as is the case in most wars. And Otto was hoping that if Napoleon III invaded, it would unite all of the German states into one big German state, which was the Prussian initiative all along. Napoleon III, on the other hand, along with other nations, was convinced that he could defeat the Prussians no problem, just as France has done all the time in the past. And when Napoleon III is denied the money he's asking for Belgium, he declares war, and within three days, the two are already fighting each other. The Germans, along with some Italian soldiers, push forward and invade with better numbers, better training, better artillery, and better railroads. And eventually, they capture Napoleon III, along with 104,000 French soldiers. 
the German forces proceed to siege Paris, and on January 28, 1871, Otto von Bismarck gets there, and he's faced with a similar situation that Napoleon I had when he arrived in Moscow. And that was that there was nobody in charge to negotiate a surrender with him. So whatever French officials are still left in Paris get together and convene, and they elect a temporary guy by the name of Favre and surrender the city to Otto von Bismarck. And on February 17th, the Germans throw a victory parade through Paris, which was silent and decorated in black. At the ceremony, Otto von Bismarck offers the country armistice and a full withdrawal of Paris as soon as France pays him 5 billion francs. After he leaves, a revolutionary army takes control of Paris and Germany now has the most professional army in the world. And this was the birth of Rhenishism, revengeism in France with a great hatred for Germany. To be continued. We have finally arrived to our acorn for this oak of an episode. Everything I've said up until now and everything I say hereafter was all brought about by the man that will end up making that generous donation of 63 acres to Northern Illinois University Normal School, the legal inventor of barbed wire, Mr. Joseph Glidden. Now I say the legal inventor because he isn't the only person to claim to having invented it. You have Leonce, Eugene Grassen Belden's, Alfonso Dobb, Lucian Smith, William Hunt, Jacob Haish, Isaac Elwood, Michael Kelly, and, of course, Joseph Glidden. And all of them had invented or patented some form of barbed wire. But after 20 years of legal battles, the Supreme Court ruled that Glidden was the inventor. And here's how it happened. So, at the 1873 County Fair in DeKalb, Illinois, the topic of fencing is a big issue. And as I stated earlier, the Midwest has plenty of open land, but very little trees. And three of the guys that I mentioned before, Joseph Glidden, a farmer, Isaac Elwood, a hardware guy, and Jacob Haish, a lumberman and architect, are all watching a demonstration by Henry M. Rose, who had nailed sharp wire points to a regular wooden fence. The purpose was to deter corralled cattle from damaging the already super expensive to build fences that ranchers had. And it worked. All three men saw potential in such a simplistic device. The farmer could use it for himself. The hardware man could sell such a tool to his customers, and the lumberman had the resources to build the fences. So each of these three men stood to make a killing in profits. And Joseph Glidden realizes that the sharp wire points or, or barbs could be attached to a taut, smooth wire to provide cheap, effective fencing. At first, Glidden twists the barbs onto the wire by using a coffee mill and a grindstone. Now, the only downside to this was that the barbs kept sliding across the wire. Isaac Elwood's version of barbed wire was much less effective, and on one occasion, he and his wife were riding in a wagon past Glidden's farm, and Elwood's wife said 
something to the effect that Glidden's invention was far superior to her husband's. Mrs. Elwood was not the only one to notice how well the barbed wire fence worked on Glidden's farm. And the beauty was, anybody could construct such a fence. The most important and time-consuming part was installing the corner posts, because those posts could often be under a half-ton's worth of pressure at a time. And once you have your solid corner posts, you simply have to tie the barbed wire around the post using a timber hitch or a boyer's knot. Now, I used to be a Boy Scout. I'm sure that's not a surprise to any of you. So I shall quickly illustrate what a timber hitch is to those of you that don't know. Now, the first mention of a timber hitch knot can be found in nautical books circa 1625. And it is the preferred way of tying a single rope to a cylindrical object, which is easy to untie, but completely secure when it's pulled taut. Loggers back in the day would also use this knot so they could guide the felled trees down the river. A timber hitch is also called a boyer's knot because it is the knot used to tie the low end of a bowstring to the bottom of an English longbow. It's also the same knot that you use to secure strings through the bridge of a classical guitar. And the specifications state that a 25-foot barbed wire sample has to have either 69 barbs 4 inches apart or 55 barbs 5 inches apart. The entire spool has to be at least 1,319 feet and has to be able to handle 4,230 newtons of force. Joseph Glidden's neighbors began placing orders for barbed wire almost immediately. And despite being outraged and humiliated by his wife, Elwood had to admit that she was right about Glidden's superior product, and he decides to partner up with Glidden and sell his barbed wire in his hardware store. And the two go on to form the Barb Fence Company in DeKalb, Illinois. Jacob Hayesh recognized that he also had an inferior product to Glidden's and raced to be the first one to patent barbed wire. By the time Glidden files for a patent on October 27, 1873, he's denied. But not to be deterred, the very next year, he creates a machine that double wraps the barbed wire, thus solving the sliding barb problem. And he's able to patent that version of his barbed wire on November 24th, 1874. And we will pick things up from here in part two of Emperors, Robber Barons, Cowboys, and Indians. keep the curiosities coming please rate us on itunes soundcloud or your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show